I'm Holiday Phillips. I'm a writer and a speaker uh, exploring the intersection of philosophy, mythology, mysticism and culture. That's a long list. (laughs) How did you end up coming um, to live on Ibiza? My boyfriend lived here for a couple of stretches in his 20s. Um, And during COVID, we were living in the suburbs of London. We had a really nice house, big garden, all of this. We had had our son um, at the end of 2020. Um, And I think just being cooped up in a house for that long, we were like, there must be something that feels more aligned with where we are and who we are. Um, and when we thought about that, we were like, yeah, the sun, it's the sea, it's more nature, it's beauty, um, closer community, just a generally more, hmm, let's say different vibe of life than is in the UK. Mm. I love the UK. I'm London and born and bred, but there's a heaviness to the energy there now. And we wanted something different to bring up our sun in. What have you sort of noticed in your um, experience of being in Ibiza thus far that's different to that kind of maybe heavy energy of London, for example? Mm. I mean, Ibiza, from my experience so far, I've only been here five months, so it's new. Um, life is just so easy. <laughs> life, the, the, when I, people ask me how do you describe it, I'm like, it's just easeful. Like, there's I, for me, there's no friction. It's like, wake up in the morning, drive 10 minutes with no traffic, drop my son to nursery, come here. Up till now, it's been sunny all the time. There's no been no, like, barely any rain, no wind. Like, it's been super easy to meet people. I have not really encountered anything that felt feels like hardship for me personally which is very different to the UK where you know you can be again my experience you can be having like lead the best life but within the first 10 minutes like someone's pushing you on the tube and like it just it's it's a gritty it's grittier London here is not and I've said to people like somehow sometimes this feels like living in a bit of a bubble where like everything's good and like you don't see or I certainly haven't seen some of the things like the <clears throat> extremes of poverty that you see all the time in London. Like there is, there's like, there's a lot more, there seems like there's a lot more, there's a lot more to grapple with in a city like London, whereas this can feel, has felt to me a bit like this just like lovely bubble. And to be honest, we needed that. So whether that's something sustainable to live in or whether I'm going to start to discover the parts of Ibiza that aren't just that, mm-hmm. we'll see. But for now, it felt like, yeah, we needed to just be in a big, positive, happy bubble. And that's okay. That's definitely okay. And I think it's interesting you say that because, yeah, I think the Ibiza bubble is a real thing. And perhaps once you're in it, you know, everything external just kind of falls by the wayside a little bit. Like even just little things like I noticed on an Instagram live you were doing the other day about the Harry and Meghan uh, situation. And I think that is probably the first thing that has pierced all of our consciousness because the news isn't something that you necessarily engage as much with when you move here. 
even as a journalist. <laughs> um, I'm very happy and grateful to say that I'm, you know, no longer tapping into the news in the way I was previously. And but that's kind of like one of those stories that is quite hard to escape because it's literally everywhere. Um, but it's intriguing that that you know that that can happen that you can kind of arrive to this island and then suddenly it's like your new reality just kind of erases the old one in many ways. Yes. I find it intriguing and I think that's definitely, you know, comes from a sort of a, a feeling of security in many ways. I mean, I definitely I've felt safer here than I have felt living anywhere else in my entire life. And I think, you know, that also comes from not engaging with certain things on a daily basis. So I just wonder, is is that your experience thus far? Totally. And I think it's like... Um... I think that there's different levels that you can plug into life and reality at. Like, on the one hand, yes, there's a way in which I, there's like, um, and I don't mean this as a criticism, like, you can bypass some of the stuff like political, like what's going on politically, because you're kind of in this like bubbly island and you're, lots of people here are entrepreneurs and operating with like businesses in different places and like you're kind of a bit that untethered from the actual place in some ways so you can kind of bypass a lot of like geopolitical stuff um and also certainly like the diversity of problems is not as in your face as it is in in the UK on the other hand what I would say and a lot of people said this to me when they came here and this was another reason that we chose here like both me and my boyfriend are on very deep personal spiritual paths and um, a lot of people said to me, like, you know, be careful when you come here because the the energetic field of the island or whether it's the combination of, like, so many people coming here to heal or just this, like, k- kind of dissonance of all the different, like, very, very strong things that this island holds, all the way from, like, hedonism to spirituality to, like, this super, super rich, like, there's a lot going on, Um it throws up a lot of stuff internally and personally. And I, I certainly have had that experience. Like, for example, today I'm coming into this interview. I was glad you didn't ask me how I was because I'm a fucking shit. I've had such a terrible week. Nothing external, but just all internal stuff and just the continuous, continuous whirlpool of just like facing childhood traumas and wounds and much, much more intensity than I did in London. So I think it's like I try and live my life as intentionally is is available to me like aware of like what's going on and there's a way in which I can feel okay this is the season here so once I'm kind of like unplugged a little bit from a particular level of reality and I thought oh great yeah I'm just gonna get to like float off and disassociate that has not been the case so I think it's uh mm, it's you can't I certainly can't plug into all levels of reality at all times and this feels like quite a personal season before I ask you I mean I love the fact that you've almost contradicted what you said a few (laughs) few minutes ago about life being so easy here because seemingly you know when I first arrived felt exactly the same it was like you know and I remember feeling like that when I left London I got to Brighton it was insane thing with sunshine it was the sea it was running on the seafront I felt like didn't have a care in the world Obviously, four years down the line, that was a completely different story. And that's exactly how I felt in Ibiza. But yeah, definitely you are forced to to meet yourself here for some bizarre reason, I think more than anywhere else I've personally ever lived. And I notice that a lot when I leave the island. And, you know, I really notice feeling a lot more grounded when I'm in England, for example, than I do when I'm in Ibiza. Um, You know, we could talk about lots of very fair reasons for that. But I think there are some genuine 
points of reference that make that true. But I think, you know, it would be interesting actually to hear, I mean, when you were kind of saying when you leave a country, because obviously that, you know, when we, if we're going to go back to the news here, which I, I just would love to just briefly go into with your view on the Meghan and Harry situation, because I found it very interesting watching your Instagram live. And I wonder if you would be kind of willing just to share your own personal perspective on that in brief, because I thought it was quite different, I think, to, to other people's. And obviously everybody's got an opinion on this. Um, but I just kind of like wonder what, what your thoughts are in brief on that. Yeah. So in brief, mm, let me say up front, like I'm coming at it from, a, as everyone is, I'm coming at it from a particular perspective, which is filtered through my own experiences and my identities and all of this, which was kind of the point of my video. So the things that say like, as a black woman or mixed race woman, even, I felt, I feel like, deeply hurt by the racist um, press, PR, Twittery stuff that I feel there has been about Megan from the beginning. And I'm like aghast when people can say they can't see it. I'm just like, oh my gosh. So there's like a, there's like a, 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 a body level rage that I feel about it and, and uh, grief. So I immediately was like much, much more sympathetic to Meghan and Harry because of that. I also like have always loved Prince Harry because it was, you know, we were grow- growing up and just like, I valued the things that I thought he, as a teenager, I valued the things I thought he represented, like wild and free and rebellious. Like that was how I self-identified versus kind of traditional and together and all stuff that I'm actually like, or I certainly was a teenager, very disparaging of. So just as naturally as a person, I'm much more sympathetic to them for those reasons. Um, Beyond that, and I was saying in the video, is like, so I have to look at like why, I had a very like, um, how can I explain it? When the Megxit first happened, when Jack and I were traveling, my pop boyfriend and I were traveling in Central America, and I was like obsessed with the story. I was reading everything about it, and he was like, "Why are you so interested in it?" And there was this thing that I felt the same time as as the beginning of COVID was like, "Here is an opportunity to so fundamentally um, restructure an institution that feels like immovable," and I am excited by that like and I said this in the video like I have a natural mm, excitement for destruction Carly energy like I'm all I, I I like I believe that some of the most toxic structures in our society and in our psyche will come from like total destruction and rebirth so whenever I see something that feels like oh, it could be that. I'm like, yeah, yeah, let's go for it. And that comes from like not a very thoughtful place. It just comes from a very instinctive place where if I see there's an opportunity to tear something down, it's like my inner teenage rebel. I'm like, fucking yeah. (laughs) So I just love it. (laughs) Um, When I'm more thoughtful about it, I can see, when I'm more thoughtful about it, it's actually just really sad to me. The whole thing is just really sad and it's sad on like a familial level it's sad on like wow we're still so racist as a society level it's sad on a level of like there's just like no humanity not that's really extreme there is a real like a place where we can go where we're just so ungenerous and it's like 
oh god he's talking about his problems again like it's just so it's so ungenerous and I'm sure there's something on the other side of some which I can't I can't feel in my heart because I don't have that love for the royal family that people feel like how ungenerous is this to our royal family and I have to believe that they're experiencing the same thing that I am experiencing from the other side and I have a lot of space for that and I think that's the place that I I'm interested in us going to is like how can we hold all these different experiences that frankly come from our own identities and our own trauma and have basically nothing to do with the actual thing and and be like okay we're all experiencing this so differently how can we still coexist because we have to Mm. so yeah on a personality level I'm like yeah love it down with the royal family I'm a republican everybody's a racist like that but on a like deeper philosophical level I'm like it's really sad that that if I were to just let that part of me be the only thing, then I would be part of the same problem that that I find to be very sad. Yeah, you've pretty much tackled absolutely everything that I also believe and think about that whole situation. And I can pinpoint really the first time that my sympathies for Harry arose, and that was listening to a podcast um, from a woman who I think is an amazing journalist. And, and, And that really, I think, was probably... Also, when her career like skyrocketed in terms of the fact that she was the first person to speak to Harry about his depression after the death of his mother. Mm-hmm. You know, he'd never really spoken about that before. And if you look at, you know, really what happened to Diana, like she was harassed to death. Um, now, when that starts to happen to the person you love, um, also in the form of racism, but particularly just the fact that she couldn't go anywhere or do anything without there being a, a pack of press waiting for her. I mean, clearly you're going to want to remove your family from danger when you have seen what he's seen as a, as a child. And I think, you know, automatically that's part one of the problem. But, you know, anything top down also, I really don't like that, you know, non-hierarchical way of looking at things. And that is exactly what the royal family represents for me because there isn't, you know, there isn't any equality in that. You're born into it. That's the way it is. There isn't any opt-out. There isn't an opportunity to to change that. And I think that's not fair for any human being. Suddenly you're in a family where you didn't ask to be in that family. You're just born and suddenly you have this situation that's not of your making. I think it's almost sad for the children that get born born into the royal family because they don't, you know, how do you know when you come onto planet Earth like what situation you're being born into? I mean, it's the only probably institution as you say that is um yeah extremely structured and not optional and I think that's a very weird scenario for any human being to come into and if it plays out in the way that it has done specifically for his choice of wife and the person he fell in love with who doesn't measure up to all of those kind of needs and necessities of um that institution then of course there's going to be a problem down the line and I think I am absolutely flabbergasted that he has gone down this road of revealing the intimacy of all of those relationships and precisely what has happened. And many people don't think that's a good thing, but I just cannot believe he's had the balls to do that. I mean, obviously we saw flavors of his rebelliousness and everything else that you mentioned, but I'm shocked. I'm shocked he's done that. And I'm just like, there's no going back from that one. You know, you're not going to repair those relationships now. You didn't just decide that overnight that was you know you have tapped out and he's clearly had time to think about that as you said the COVID thing you know they went to another country on the other side of the world and had no protection suddenly his family was in danger again it's like you can't go from A to B overnight so it's it's such an intricate and complex story and 
obviously extremely fascinating because we've never seen anything like this happen before and play out on a, you know, global stage on Netflix. I mean, mad, absolutely mad. But I still think hats off. He's standing up for what he believes in and the woman that he loves. And the way that she has been treated is disgusting and should never, ever have been allowed. And I do believe that that institution has control over the press to some degree. Of course they do. They're the bloody royal family. It's like saying that, oh, no, we don't know anything about that. That couldn't possibly have anything to do with that. It feels deeply disingenuous and completely inauthentic. Um, And I thought it was worth a mention because... There must be a process of grieving to a certain degree as well that's come into all of this, not just Harry with his mum, but that whole, for me, you know, he has no family now. No one is, you know, he's kind of disowned. He's been disowned and has disowned his own family. So I think there's a lot going on there, but it kind of leads us neatly on to, I think, perhaps this this spiritual journey that perhaps I believe that you're on due to your own personal family circumstances and the loss of your sister and the fact that you were involved in Ted because of that, mm-hmm. um, partly, and using grief as activism. And I think, you know, I think that's what Harry's done. I really believe that that is, you know, he's used the death of his mother and to take the power back. And again, that's something that's extremely rare. And I think that's what really interests me about your TED talk um, because I think it's always seen as such a negative thing grief it's you know it's going to take you down it's going to completely destroy you and obviously you know who knows what's going to come after that but I think we're all kind of dreading this moment when we have to engage with this thing that we all know is coming at some point in our lives and a lot of us I would say I'm extremely lucky enough not to have experienced it on any deep level as yet Um, but from reading your talk I think it's beautiful really the way you've kind of activated um, the parts of yourself and I and I'd wonder you know, how do you see grief as a tool for activism? So I think that there's like, um, I, would say two, I would say two things. And one of them I would actually like to re-bring back in Harry and Meghan because I've just seen something that I hadn't seen before. I feel that we as a society do not have collective ways of processing pain is not something that we're taught. In fact, we're taught to fear pain, minimize pain, turn away from pain. Um, Like I really see it with my two-year-old son, that how often if he's crying or something's wrong, like, and I particularly see this with like kind of my my parents' generation, the immediate thing is they want to distract they want to distract or like make him happy again it's like just leave him alone <laughs> like I have to that's one of the things I'm I'm a very very re- relaxed in terms of like I, I as a mum I'm not trying to make other people treat my son in a particular way because I know that people are different but that's the one thing that I will always kind of have a boundary on because that's teaching him from such a early early age like I don't want you to feel sad it makes me feel uncomfortable when you're sad so could you please be happy again and that's just such an unnatural um vision for what life actually is which is a mixture of all of the things happiness and sadness and pain and all of this kind of thing so there's there's like a a very like complex this is this is complex like too complex for me to, to understand or explain but I'll do my best is like um as a human species we are on an evolutionary track like we're always trying like our physiology our neurology the way we organize is always trying to organize towards something better 
definitely towards something more complex. And I think there is something that we're trying to organise towards something better because we have a natural, like, empathetic makeup where we don't like seeing other people in pain. So there is something where we're on this journey towards some towards less suffering. I think that's true. At the same time, suffering pain, as far as we can see it, is part of life. It's always going to be part of life. It's part of nature. Nature's savage. So there's no evidence to tell us that this shouldn't be the way for, for a start, that there shouldn't be pain in life. Um, and with that in mind, it should be like 101 responsibility as humans that we know how to process our pain. And we don't have those tools, I don't think. Um, certainly not collectively. So when it comes to activism, what I see when we, when there's a global crisis, or like a, even something, you know, small news story or whatever it is we're, we're being kind of hammered with about all of the suffering in the world, we tend to have two, one of two responses, which is the apathetic response, which I think is probably like the majority of the population, which is like, I... I'm just going to turn away from this or I'm going to become so numb to it. I, I would speak, you know, this is me. I do this for sure that I can just scroll through like, oh, there's been a genocide. Hmm, what's going on with Harry and Meghan? Like, do, you know, you can just do that because we have to, we're like so able to turn away from it. So that's one response. The other response, which I think of as kind of like a an activated pain response is to see like there's a problem, we need to fix it. And the way that we tend to fix problems in society is to identify the cause, and that cause is generally a culprit or a villain. And then it's like, how can we eliminate the villain or like marginalize the villain? So it's like we look at things like war on drugs, war on COVID, war on. There's just always some war on something that we're trying to eliminate. So that we're really wired to to deal with problems in that way, fixed by going to war with. So the the that's what I see as like a general response to global crises. It's really also important for me to say like there's of course lots of other strategic and tactical things going on, but as a general thing, I see that as being the response. And both of those responses come from the inability to process the pain of what's happening. Mm. Um, and grieving is literally the process of digesting pain. It's the process of being able to feel the pain of what's going on so fully and for so long. I think that's the thing that people miss. Like I was speaking to someone this morning, they were like, yeah, well, I grieve when George Floyd died. I was like, for how long? Like we're probably all still in a grieving process for all of these things. Grief is like a, a lifelong multiple year, multiple generation process if we're really meeting the like the depth of how painful it is to think that there are things like child abuse and genocide. Like that's, if we really meet that with authentic like an authentic response we would always be grieving and I don't think that's a bad thing I think that we should be in a con like meeting this world should be a constant state of like wonder for all of the beauty and then also grieving for all of the suffering so for me grief is like a way of number one it's a way of being in relationship with what is which is like there is suffering how do I feel this so fully that's number one. And then number two, like, we have to be able to transform that because otherwise it just floors us. And that was my personal experience, or is my personal experience with grieving my sister's death is like, I think it's a wave. It's not one after another. It's like, I'm still in the process of feeling new layers of how 
profoundly sad that is and was, but also it changed me. Like I'm softer. I'm I was already pretty soft, but I'm even softer and wiser and like I've it's not quite as extreme, but every single breakup that I've had has transformed me for the better. And I'm the type of person who, when I break up, like I am just like so heartbroken on the floor for like three years like my long longest term relationship was with before my fiance now was with for seven years I was like heartbroken for three years I mean I really fucking go there and that each one when I've come out of that has like completely blown my heart open and I think of myself as like an enormously open-hearted person and that's proportionate to how much I have allowed my heart to be broken and there's still tons of protect, like walls that need to come down for me. But um, yeah, I mean, I've kind of gone all around, but it's like, that's the basic thing I think I'm saying. To meet, if, in our personal lives, to meet pain, we either turn away, we either spend our lives turning away from it or getting hardened by it and then wanting to fight. We can choose to do that, but it certainly doesn't make a more beautiful world. Or we can open to it, feel the pain and let it transform us. And I think that's the same on a collective scale. Like we can either continue to turn away and being apathetic because we don't want to be crushed by it or we just keep getting angry and finding the next villain and starting a new war. The other path is that we meet the grief that we're feeling and actually go all the way. And then the other thing I was going to say about the Harry and Meghan thing, which is like we're going to go try and get this as succinct as possible, like... I do think a lot of people are jarred by the kind of, they see the, well, they might see the kind of fundamental inauthenticity of the royal family and how it's just like such a charade. Like, you know, there is no truth in that, actually. Like, if you see the way that they operate, these are not real people being able to be, like you were saying, in the world in a real way. This is a character. This is like a... They're upholding a value. They're avatars, basically. It's extremely sad on a human level. But I think a lot of people feel the same from Harry and Meghan. And I do get that because it has that kind of Hollywoodized, shiny, like when I, 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 as I say, I really like her. But when I watch the Netflix documentary, like it doesn't ring true in my heart. It's like, and then I was the little mermaid. And I was thinking, oh God. And that could be an English American, like lost in translation. But it's also inauthentic, and I and I don't blame either side for being inauthentic because we're, they're in a container where you cannot be a real person. Like it's just not, it's not supportive of that. Like even looking at Harry, and I think he does come across quite authentic, going and doing his like Jimmy Kimmel live. Like these are not real interactions. Like they're trying to like get a little soundbite or whatever. So they are challenging the institution but they still only have the same tools as the thing they're seeking to challenge so it's like there's only so far they can go and I feel that's kind of the same as what I feel with activism it's like when we're only always looking for a villain or when we're like rising up we may make a change but we're still using the same tools which is like there has to be someone out there who is bad and wrong and we need to cancel or whatever them so we're just we're playing the same game and what we need to do whatever that looks like and I'm you know I'm not an oracle is get into a different game and I think grief is the portal to that there's so many things I want to say about that but number one is like well the charade let's address that part first I mean I was walking in Windsor Park with my parents when I went back for Christmas because they live in Windsor and we were walking down the park and they were like oh 
I was like, oh, that's weird that that bit's been closed off. Oh, yeah, that's the path to Andrew's house. That's like the 29-bedroom house that he's just moved into. And I was like, oh, why did they close it off then? Yeah, well, you know, I guess there's a few people that might want (laughs) to pop over and have a word with him at the moment. And I mean, the fact of the matter is, if he can still be within that institution, then that's all the answers that you need. I mean, that is not okay. And the fact that British society and that institution are even allowing that charade to continue you know, when we all know, you know, there's nothing to hide from there. That's everything you need to know, because that's not acceptable. And if that's allowed to continue for him to even reside upon royal property after everything that's happened, then someone like Harry, you know, who's done really nothing wrong in the grand scheme of things, um, should not be torn down, you know, from this place that um, we all respected him. You know, I, res- I I still do respect him. I don't haven't lost any respect for Harry for, for what he said. But it's only when situations like this come up that we are allowed to analyse and, and that is, you know, all of those different things that have happened. I mean, I didn't even know half of the stuff that the monarchy have done because I haven't sat down and studied the entire timeline of everything they've done through the course of time. But clearly that's been represented in the press in a very unfavourable fashion and... A lot of people had a, some very interesting things to say when the Queen died, but I didn't, you know, of course you know about um, colonisation and, and bad things that happen as a, as a result of that, but it's rare as a human being that you sit down and spend those time, you know, that amount of time looking at the effect and the and the the passing on, really, of, of the degradation and the things that go along with that. And, and I think... It is it is a giant grieving process. There's no denying, but I don't think any of us ever give us ourselves space and time um, to do that in this lifetime. You know, grieving is extremely lengthy and hard, and we are very lazy as a human race. <laughs> and and who has time or the kind of indulging ability to sit around for days, weeks however long it might take to really properly grieve for something and tap out of everyday life. And and it's not, you know, I think that's what's needed. I really believe to grieve properly, I've never done it myself, but I do know that when the day comes, there's certain people in my life that if they leave me, I'm going to be a horrible mess for a really long time. And I'm not going to just brush that. God, it's even making me just well up even thinking about it. It's just like, you know, how could you possibly brush that under the carpet? It's not going to be good in the long term if you don't fully go there. Because I, yeah, from what I've seen from the people that I love in my life, you know, when bad things happen to them, it just makes you ill. And we're all going to get ill at some point. But I think grieving is a is a very, very, very in-depth process that is full-bodied and, um, you know, full-hearted for sure. And I loved what you said also about, you know, these processes of grief and heartbreak opening you and softening you more. Because I just think... You know, every relationship I've ever had, people are like, why are you going back in there with such a, you know, why are you throwing yourself back in at the deep end as in the next one? It's like, yeah, but if you don't, if you don't go there with every single thing that comes your way, you're never going to know the full possibility of what could be. And I think shutting down is really the worst thing that you can do because I think you shut down one area of your, you know, your heart, your feelings, and you become closed in all, all directions. And I think then you're not going to experience the full joy of what life has to give us or the full sadness or any of those things so I think it's such a full-bodied process and I think that's why I really loved your talk for specifically that reason Um, but how do you think you know what does it mean in your mind to be an activist 
Mm. So actually, the, the, from what you were saying there, it made me think about like, um, I, we, we've been told, well, we've been told that being an activist is to, is to, is to be out there doing something, like rearranging something. It needs to be something that we're doing. And like, I guess that's in the etymology of the word. But if we think about, the, if I think about the like deeper purpose behind activism, it's like, being someone who is willing to stand up and meet the problems of the world um, with a heart that wants to change them. I think that's how I feel it more than like I'm out there and I'm acting. Um, and I think that, the, that what you were saying there about like grieving is like when we hear grieving, we think, oh, I'm going to be a mess on the floor and who has the time to like indulge in that? And I think that that's actually like, if I may say, because I will get into this as well, like, quite a like masculine archetypally masculine perspective it's like um it needs to be separate from life like I need to like put I can't I need to put all my life on hold and I need to like go and just fall apart it's like on the spiritual path because I had a very very masculine spiritual path before I was like silent meditation did, did like quit my job I was like I have to remove myself from life and go and do this and then attain enlightenment then I can plug back in now I've find myself like I have been forced to from becoming a mother be on a much more embodied path I feel and so it's like when my sister died that was six months after my son was born I couldn't I couldn't and shouldn't have become a mess on the floor and just like unable to do anything that was not the best thing for me or my son I had to be an adult like find ways to grieve and move the grief through me and then still show up and feed my son and wake up when he was asleep and you know in the night and all of these things and so I think there's like a a way in which we where grief needs to become part of our like lexicon or our like vocabulary in day-to-day life and it could literally be something as brief for me is really just feeling what is true versus putting up a wall so it's literally something as small as like I was thinking when you were saying when I came and asked can ask me how I am I don't want her to ask me how I am anymore because you immediately that's you have to so often just put up a wall because you don't want to say to someone like actually I'm having a really rough time because you don't necessarily want to go there and they don't want to go there and but that I think is like a very small lived way of being in grief so and to the point about activism there is an activism which is like being out there advocating for justice in the world through action. And I think that that's important. But there's like a another level of activism, which is maybe what I might call embodied activism, which is like how, well, it's like, how do you be the change, right? But on a very, very like embodied level, which is like, okay, I'll give an example, like, you want to be part of the dismantling of the patriarchy. I would like to be part of the dismantling of the patriarchy. One of the most insidious parts of the patriarchy, as I see it, is like um, uh, goal addiction, production, obsession, like um, you're only worthy if you are creating something and then, you know, just tiny terms and conditions that generates profit, blah, 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 blah. So like one of the ways that you personally on an embodied way dive or I could personally on an embodied way divest from that is to 
like take a nap. And that seems like so small and trivial, but it's actually not because every time I go to take a nap, I'm like, but I could be doing this and I could be doing this. So that is internalized patriarchy alive in every single minute of my day. So yes, I would like to be out there advocating for women in Iran. That's really important. But I would also like to be dismantling the internalized patriarchy that I have been conditioned into. And both of those are activism. Very interesting. I think I had a an interview with someone who was uh, part of the crew basically trying to make ecocide like an international law. And she was talking to me about armchair activism, which I definitely have done a lot of in this lifetime. There was one day when I was invited by somebody I'd also interviewed to act on Ibiza, specifically in part of a protest. And when push came to shove, I was like, I don't want to do that. Like, I don't see myself doing that. And it's something I really believed in. I had shared with this person that I really believed in it. But when she asked me to basically go and hold up a banner and block off a road, I was like, I don't feel like that. I don't feel like that's going to help. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't. That's why I'm interested in this idea of, you know, what activism is. And, and it's very interesting. Perhaps it's a personal thing to to people individually about how they feel you know, as you say, like taking a nap or going against the grain of how we're told it should be to be an activist. I felt, well, what what is that actually for me personally? I just felt that I wasn't going to achieve our goal. I mean, there's so many ways to tackle the issues of climate change um, and, you know, the billionaires that kind of fly in on their private jets. And it was, you know, she was trying to ask ask me to go and block off a road. And I just sat there and I really had to just sort of take a few deep breaths and think about, you know, I'm very happy to be part of something, but I feel like it has to have, you know, impact on a personal level as well. It's not just about what you think activism should look like. It's, 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 it's a bigger process, I think, of what is the goal and and what are the small steps to get there, I think, as a, as a as a whole, rather than just doing something for the sake of kind of showing up for somebody else's idea of how activism should look. I, I think it's a very personal journey. And um, I found that also quite intriguing, really. And I think to unpack this idea of grief being a form of activism is extremely interesting, actually, specifically. And also, you know, it could be applied to so many other areas. You know, also the climate, obviously, is another big area that everybody's always talking about on a daily basis. And there's so much grieving that could be done for the loss, you know, the loss of land, the loss of biodiversity, the loss of so many things as a result of all of that. But as you say, if we're going to sit around grieving all day, (laughs) we're not going to perhaps enjoy any part of our lives so it's, it's it's a very intriguing thing as to how much time we should spend thinking about this processing it you know how do you how do you from your own personal experience feel like processing has been perhaps done in in, the, in its best form I mean what would you say to somebody who showed up if I just rocked up here and said oh God, my mum's just died you know what would your best advice be perhaps for what the lessons you've personally learned from your own experience with grief Mm. um well the first thing I would do if if someone's came up to me and said that is I would like I what would happen is automatically in my body I would get this like desire to make them not feel pain I know that would happen I'd be like oh my gosh 
how do I take away their pain that would be my empathy and then there'd probably also be part of me which is like this is really uncomfortable what do I say am I going to say the right thing you know and and that would be the the instant thing that I would get a handle of because if I don't get conscious of that then I'm going to be actually I'm going to be in service to myself in whatever I say next rather than actually in service to the person or to the energy of grief itself so probably the I would say I would say nothing um and then depending on the person that I would depending on that person that I, it was I mean I was saying this to a friend of mine the other day like my sister was very very ill for her whole life really and and so towards the end of her life I remember having a conversation with her and from mental illness like she this was not going to be cured this was not we knew that at, at the end of her life and I remember, like, I got it in the last week of her life because I'd spent the whole of her life being like, well, maybe if we do this, maybe, if, maybe we can do this. And, and of course we did because we wanted to save her. But in the last week of her life, it was like, oh, yeah, this person doesn't want to be healed. They just want to be held. They just want to be loved. That was all there was at the end. Um, and I hear that with a lot of people who do end-of-life care. It's like that person just wants to be held and loved and for you to be with them in full presence. And if you're in this, like, how do I make them feel better? How do I make myself feel better? You're not actually present with them. So I think the first thing about grief is, like, to be in it. And 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 grief is, like, a really beautiful process. So I wouldn't, I don't see it anymore as, like, well, how can I enjoy the beauty of life? Like, I can enjoy the beauty of life way more because I have an intimacy with death. Mm, you only have as much capacity for joy as you have for grief, I believe, um, because you can. Grief, grief is like the deepest human experience, and when you can go to those depths, you can go to those depths anywhere. Like you can, I've got much more range in my anger now, and in my joy, and in my pleasure. Like I have much more just general emotional range because grief takes you down. So I think the thing is like you have to be with what is you just have to it's as simple as that you just have to stay with what is and part of your grief might be like I'm just so sad or I'm just so angry or actually I want to totally disassociate from it whatever it is it's going to be a process and you have to allow yourself to be with what is like that's what grief is it's a journey but what I would say to people is like you can't avoid it so either you're going to go with it or it's going to take you down like a wave my preference would be not to be taken out in my in my when I'm least expecting it but that's happened to me too like sometimes I'm like yeah da, 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 everything's good and then it's like I'm going to be taken like a wave grief is the ocean that's all that's the best way to describe it actually which is funny because my son's name is ocean and I've never thought about it before it's like it could be still and sunny and then you're just going to get smacked down by the wave and the best thing you can do is have the support around you to hold you have the knowing that it will always change and have the willingness to go there and and I'd say the willingness to go there requires a willingness to be uncomfortable for other people because nobody really likes like a miserable grieving person (laughs) it's really true like people are happy for you to be grieving for like the first six months or like a year but then afterwards like hey can you just move on I've seen it a lot again much more with breakups because I think breakups are a death and it is more socially acceptable to like be 
have opinions about it and people I've heard people say oh can can they just move on by now Mm. so it's like are you willing to stay in the truth of what you're feeling for long enough that people are going to start being like oh I don't want to be around this person anymore yeah if you really want to go into grief if you really want to be taken by grief and be with grief you have to know that it's going to make people feel uncomfortable for the reason we spoke at the beginning which is like in a society we're taught to fear pain and make pain unsafe so if you're this kind of like dark cloud walking around, people are like, oh, God, I don't want to catch that. <laughs> so I think you have to find the people who are able to hold that. Mm-hmm. And then they're your people to walk with for that little part of your journey. Interesting. And I think they're quite a rare breed, people that are willing to do that for you or be with you through that. And I, you know, I think that's, yeah, I mean, we're all... I feel before the last few years were skating around on the surface of life quite a lot more than we are now. I don't feel that I'm in the same place as I was before all of that. And I think there's just been so much going on the last few years that you've just been forced to engage with it. And, um, you know, obviously everyone started off by kind of drinking through it. Lockdown. Yeah, all becoming perfect <laughs> and like making bread and like that was the other way that people chose to disassociate. <laughs> I was pregnant. I didn't get to do either of those. I was just, just growing. That's um yeah. Also probably brought up its own challenges as well, not knowing when it was gonna end or what life would look like afterwards. But I don't know. It just feels like life has been heavier in the last few years than than it than it used to be. And suddenly I think when you interact with grief and heaviness I don't know it just seems to keep on coming because as you you know pointed out with this timeline it was COVID then it was the Black Lives Matter and I'll still never forget you know where I was sitting when I saw that video I think Madonna reposted it and I just watched it and I watched it in full and I was just yeah absolutely taken out by it and I was I don't know. Of course, we know things like this go on, I suppose. But you just don't think about them because obviously it's so much easier to push the ugly side of life to the back of your mind and pretend it doesn't exist until the next thing comes up that forces you to go, oh, yeah, it's still there. But I'm going to have a quick look at that and then do exactly the same thing. And like, how much is at the back of the wardrobe? That's the question. Like, how big can that pile get before it explodes? Like... A volcano that's kind of, you know, it's going to go off. Mount Vesuvius is not going to stay calm forever. And I think, I feel like, I feel like a lot of people are on the on the cusp of an explosion because I think there's just been way too much put on the pile. And also then just trying to be like a normal human in normal life and pretend, as you said, when you came in the door, apparently everything's okay. And that's that's what I really like about that podcast, going back to the lady that interviewed Harry. She says how are you today? And they go, oh, I'm fine. How are you? And she's like, no, but how are you really? That's how she starts. And no one was doing that before. It was this before this mental health talk of the last few years when people have suddenly gone, oh yeah, we're actually now allowed to say that we are in a mental health crisis. But before that, people's pain just wasn't as important. And I think there's been a lot of learning about pain in the last few years and how to really face people's pain and struggles because I don't think somehow we we looked at that as deeply as we do now now we are acknowledging oh it's okay for somebody not to be okay and it is okay to talk to them about that and I think before that 
a bit like the uh, the Royal Institution. You just don't go there with certain people or ask them about certain things because there's a deep knowledge within the rest of us that this thing exists, except it's almost like an elephant in the room that you're not supposed to mention. And I think, I do feel like there's been a... Um, an evolution of of our own collective acknowledgement of feeling mm-hmm. is is extremely important. And my dad, you know, is, is a prime example of that because, you know, he grew up during the war and pain was there on a daily basis. You know, he didn't have enough food. He was in the middle of a war zone. Bad things happened. He got evacuated. I think he didn't have a very nice time. Um life was was hard and we this is our first taste i think of of life being like that and instead of brushing it under the carpet which is what they used to do back then we are more evolved you know emotionally intelligent well not intelligent developed people and i think that we are being forced to talk about this or otherwise we're going to end up in the situation of just like <laughs> brushing it under the carpet like has always happened so i think but old, the older generation, if I speak to my dad about, you know, people talking about their feelings and having mental health issues, and he just thinks that's just a load of old codswallop and people should just, you know, get up in the morning and, and have a cup of tea and put their socks on and pretend everything's normal. And I find that absolutely fascinating because I think, oh, that's why my dad's the way he is then. And it explains so much of a lot of things you know it explains like why people are the way they are because they don't talk about their stuff and i think you can say that it's deeply self indulgent to have a therapist or a psychotherapist or whatever but i don't i don't think it is i really don't and i think it is much more intelligent to be in the way that life is now where people discuss these things and okay maybe it doesn't need to come up over a cup of tea with a stranger that you've literally just met but it's certainly something that you can discuss openly with the people that are going to walk that path with you. And I think, yeah, I just really can't wait to hear your TED talk, basically, um, on the basis of this conversation. And I think it's a, you know, very different from anything else that I, I saw in the very, very, very large pile of applicants. And um, it is a really interesting topic to explore. So I'm looking forward to that. You know, what what is it that you are most looking forward to to being part of Abitha's very, very first um, TEDx conference in English? Hmm. Um, yeah, I'm really, really looking forward for, to an opportunity to explore this idea because this is like I'm in exploration of this idea. Even in this conversation, I've seen like new things and I'm like, mm, maybe that's not quite right. Let me just like recraft this. Let me like get into the corner of this or maybe I don't believe that anymore. So this whole process is like a really mm, focused way of me being able to... Um, Mm, become closer to this idea um, in a way that's very, very held and very, very structured. So that's like a... mm, There's this whole process an opportunity to translate what feels like a really intuitive idea into something that has meaning and potential to inspire change in myself, first and foremost, then also others. So I'm looking forward to that. And um, mm, I've got to say, like, within to, 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 maybe you don't put this into the podcast, but I'll say it to you, like, um, Ibiza is an extremely white aisle in all the ways, like, <laughs> both, you know, the, the, white, the, the white aisle, as they call it, and also, you know, coming from London, I'm, like, 
it, it's always like a, a, sh- a shock to me still going into rooms where everybody is white. I have never had that experience except for in the north of England. Um, and I remember the first time I went to the north of England to visit my sister who was at York University and I went on a train and everyone in the train carriage was white. And I remember calling my dad, I was like, I've never seen this before because I grew up in inner city London. It was like everyone. And so I'd never been in a space where there was not racial diversity until now. Um, And so I don't know about the ethnic backgrounds of the other TED speakers, but I think it's really important that there is, I feel really happy to bring some racial diversity to the, to the conference because um, it's, I think a lot of, there's there's a degree of invisibility to people of color in Ibiza. I guess you get it everywhere, but it's more pronounced here where I see like, okay, when, the only time I really see black people in Ibiza is the people who are doing the construction in our house or I see um, East Asian people, they're working in the villas and like, I don't see that kind of diversity here. So we have a little bit of a like, it, it, being a European country, you have a lot of the, it's, Hmm, what do I say? There's an opportunity for, to... Hmm, I don't even know if there's an opportunity to change that, but I'm happy to bring more racial diversity to a place that is uh, a platform for ideas and for um, being a representation of Ibiza. Yeah, there's a lot more on that, but I think that makes sense. I think that's another whole podcast, actually, and it's definitely... I mean, I've always thought that, I've been here for 10 years now and I'm just like, wow, why is it like this? And I think there's more diversity in the music scene here. That's the place I I see, you know, more of a mixture. But one of the applicants that we did have on the TED stage that isn't going to be doing a talk after all for lots of reasons, but is the people organising the Black Music Summit, which is happening this year. So we should... In Ibiza. Ibiza is going to have the Black Music Summit this year, which is very exciting. Yeah, sorry, I'm just talking now. It's fine. We'll just finish it. I actually was saying to my boyfriend, because I was like, um, because this is an interesting thing. I'd love to know what you think about this kind of uh, now offline. Is like, my boyfriend had said to me, like, just post in one of the WhatsApp groups, like... What's going on? No, not not even that. Like, hey, I'm a a, like mixed race woman. I'd really love to meet other people of colour. Like, does anyone want to meet up? And I was like, there is no way I would do that because Ibiza is also like quite a you know it's a spiritual island there is a like line of thinking within the spiritual community um that like goes down to universal law spiritual principle which is like we are all one our identities are a barrier to to enlightenment like yes that's i believe that to be true on like universal law level but we're also human bodies living in a world and i and i and i feel that there is like a friction within spiritual communities who do not want to acknowledge that people have like lived bodied experiences and I was like there's no way I'm posting that because I don't want to get a response of like we don't divide people do you know what I mean you know there's going to be like one or two people who think that so I think that there's like um it's difficult to navigate the there's a different challenge to navigate navigating conversations around race for people who are in spiritual work mm. like in the way that in political conversations it's difficult to navigate conversations around race because like everybody's so combative and angry and you don't get that like deeper um kind of wisdom that you might get in 
communities of people who are engaged in like philosophical or spiritual thinking but then you get another challenge which is like a bypass of like we're all one all lives matter like your name doesn't matter your job doesn't matter it's like (laughs) okay there you go it's the reset rebel